0: Hi, Sacred Tension fans. My name is Matt Langston, and I play in a band called Eleventy Seven. I'm an artist, a producer, and I also host my own podcast right here on Rock Candy called Eleventy Life. We talk with the people behind your favorite songs and albums, from the writers to the producers and everyone in between. And we're not asking your favorite artists the same old boring questions like, where did your band name come from? And who's your favorite friend's character? We're asking questions like, why did your marriage fail? Where does love come from? Is God real? It is a show about the importance of creativity and pursuing your passion. And we don't let guests leave until it gets a little bit uncomfortable. So check it out right here on Rock Candy and your favorite podcast app. This is Sacred Tension, the podcast about the spiritual discipline of asking questions. My name is Stephen Bradford Long, and I am talking to Benjamin Zeller today. Benjamin Zeller is a researcher and teacher of religion in America. He focuses on religious currents that are new or alternative, including new religions, the religious engagement with science, and the quasi-religious relationship people have with food. His interests are united by an interest in expanding the conversation about religion by including less commonly studied groups, phenomena, and topics and looking at more common topics. In other words, religion and science American religious history from new angles. Zeller is associate professor and chair of the Department of Religion at Lake Forest College, a private liberal arts college in the Chicago suburbs. He previously served as director of the college honors program, assistant professor of religious studies and coordinator of the religion and philosophy major at Brevard College and visiting Fulbright Fellow at Abo Academy. All right. Well, Ben, thank you so much for joining me.
1: It's a pleasure. Thank you for having me.
0: Uh, so you were referred to me by my friend, by our mutual friend uh, Joseph Laycock, who has mm-hmm. uh, who is the most interviewed guest on this show, <laughs> and so he, is, he
1: does a lot of fun stuff.
0: He had he does a ton <laughs> of fun stuff, and and I'm just fascinated by the topic of new religious movements and spirituality in general, and why people believe what they believe and how ritual and spiritual practice just seem to be kind of baked into human nature. It's like we can't get rid of it. It's a fascinating subject to me. So you're the author of many books. Uh, and the one that we're going to be talking about today is uh, Heaven's Gate, America's UFO Religion, which was published in 2014. And you were also featured in the fantastic Heaven's Gate podcast last year, hosted by Glenn Washington. Mm-hmm. And yep. mm-hmm. and that was a fantastic, awesome podcast. And I highly recommend everyone listen to that. So
1: can I put in a plug for, in for that? right? Yes, now? I, I, I just learned this morning, I was texting with the associate producer uh, at uh, at Pineapple Street Media, which produced it, uh, we're up to 4 million downloads now, which is in the top 1% of all podcasts. That is incredible.
0: (laughs) Yeah, it is. It's
1: amazing. We were just emailing about why we think it had the the pull, the the fascination Mm. it did. And, uh, you know, it's... Obviously, I think a lot of it was uh, the amazing production staff and, yes. and hosting Glenn Washington and others. But I think part of it is the story, too. Had we done exactly what we did, but about another different group, it wouldn't have have turned out as well. Uh, so I think part of the fascination is Heaven's Gate itself.
0: Absolutely. I totally agree with that. And I also wonder if we're kind of in this moment right now of of being obsessed or, or being really fascinated by alternative what are often deemed alternative beliefs because in a way, alternative belief has come to the forefront with people like Alex Jones influencing the president, you know, and, and a QAnon and Pizzagate. And, and so I think because of the internet and this weird moment that we're in, there's this Kind of turning inside out of of the fringe becoming the center of, and suddenly people are really fascinated by this stuff.
1: I think you're entirely right. So I was just about to say what's so interesting about about our moment is that we don't know what's alternative anymore. Yes. So alternative used to mean. So for example, you know, for with Heaven's Gate, which I've spent a lot of time studying, one reason they were alternative is because they bought into all these conspiracy theories. And in the '90s, that was fringe and that was alternative. But in in our current. Era where you know our 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 president is a believer in conspiracy theories and helped to spread the the birther conspiracy theories about President Obama. It, it, that's no longer alternative. That's not fringe anymore. And that is fascinating to me the way in which in which that boundary is so permeable and has shifted over time.
0: Absolutely. So before we get any further, could you tell us briefly what Heaven's Gate was?
1: Absolutely. Yeah. Again, we'll have ourselves here. So Heaven's Gate <laughs> uh, was a was a group that. Uh, effectively ended in 1997, March 1997, with the collective uh, suicides or exits uh, of the 39 active members of the group who were living uh, just outside of San Diego in Rancho Santa Fe, California. This made the news it was a national sort of uh, headline for for weeks on end, partially because of the theatrics of it. They had all dressed in matching uniforms, sort of these purple track suits with, with Nike tennis shoes. Uh, it was the largest mass suicide uh, collective mass suicide in, uh, in the U.S. mainland. There were all these elements. Uh, they had a website. Uh, the Hellbop comet was overhead. It was right around Easter time, so it really attracted a lot of attention. And uh, but that was it because the group, uh, the group ended at that point. There were a few members who were sort of stragglers who also performed uh, what they would call exits or we would call suicides in the years that followed. But uh, the group is defunct. It's over now. Uh, but it actually began uh, back in the 70s. So it was around a 20 years uh, history uh, for the group. And so my book was trying to uh, unravel the history of the origin of Heaven's Gate in the 1970s, uh, how they attracted people, why people joined this group, what it was like to live in the group, because people did live in it for, for 20 years, what uh, what life was like, what their beliefs and practices were like, and then ultimately, of course, why it ended.
0: The title of your book is Heaven's Gate, America's UFO Religion. So Heaven's Gate is what a lot of popular culture in America would call a cult. So why Mm -hmm. do you differentiate? Why do you call it a religion? Why not subtitle your book America's UFO Cult? What is the difference there? Or why opt for religion instead of cult?
1: That's a, a great question. So I have met, uh, and in some cases befriended, people who belong to many different religious groups, and I've never met a person who said that they were part of a cult. A cult mm. is is not, except for in joke, perhaps, uh, in jest, cult is not a term people use about themselves. It's not a first-order term. It's a term that mm. we apply to others, and it's a term which is applied to others when we don't like their religion or we don't approve of their religion. And, and you know what I think is one of the best examples of this is, uh, according to the official Law and statements of of the the Russian government. The Southern Baptist Convention is a cult. So the Southern <laughs> Baptists are a cult. You go to Texas, though, and they're the largest religion. So how can you go from being the largest religion to being a cult? Right. Well, it depends on your geographic cultural circumstances. That that's all we mean by the term. A, a cult is fundamentally someone else's religion that we don't like. Right. Uh, and, and that's not to say they're all good, and it's not to say that they're all uh, 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 that I'm a proponent of them. Uh, but just to recognize that just because a group is small or different doesn't mean that it we should necessarily dismiss it. I try to take it seriously. We may not agree with what they did, but I think we have to take seriously that this was, this was for the members something which was meaningful.
0: Mm, so, you know, Joseph and I were talking about this in an episode we did last year on new religious movements about how basically mm-hmm. the word cult, and I think you touch on this in your book, how basically the word cult is the word we use when we want to villainize or dismiss or not think very hard about a religious group and not think very hard about their the consequences or or the implications of this group in our society you know and and i'm wondering if you could talk more about that like what is it that when, when people call Heaven's Gate a cult, what is it that we are protecting ourselves from? Like, what is it that we are afraid of? What is it sheltering us from when we use the word cult instead of religion?
1: Yeah, that's, that's a great question, Greg. And so when I was looking at the archival materials from 1997, right after the, the, the suicides, I was struck by the way in which cult was used, the language of cult was used, almost as a defensive mechanism, mm. because in some cases, Heaven's Gate struck too close to home. This was a group of people who believed, believed that the most important thing in in life was not living on this planet, in this life, but the afterlife, what happened afterwards. And they oriented their entire earthly existences around an after-existence, an afterlife. They believed that they were not this body. They believed that they were following uh, the uh, higher set of of orders and morals given to them uh, and recorded in in the Bible 2,000 years ago. Uh, they interpreted it differently, but they nevertheless claimed that they were followers of Jesus, followers of Christ. Mm. Although they read the Book of Revelation differently than other Christians, they believed they were living in the end times, that the time had come. Uh, there's so much about Heaven's Gate, which basically is Christian. I think that that they really touched on something which, uh, which for many American Christians was very dis- discomforting, and that is the the similarity, the fundamental parallel between what Heaven's Gate did and the the way that Christian theology and history has worked out. So if you look. Look at early Christianity at the f- first, second, third centuries. The way in which. Christ- Christian martyrs allowed themselves to be thrown into the lions and uh, the, the Roman uh, gladiatorial combats uh, mm. because they believed that this life was meaningless compared to what was to come and they were willing to die as martyrs in order to show others the, the truth. Members of Heaven's Gate believed they were engaging in a demonstration, that's the term they used, for the rest of us about the truth and that their bodies didn't matter what mattered is what came afterwards. And they did this at Easter time. They read the Bible uh, their, their famous website that attracted so much attention was filled with bible quotes. They basically said we have the correct view of the bible and of christianity. And I think this was mm. in some ways too close to comfort. It's easier to dismiss them and call them crazy than to actually take seriously what they had to say because it is discomforting. Mm. Their the- theology is ultimately one which does grow out of christianity. It's not crazy. It's 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 rooted in christian theology or rather I suppose it's no more crazy than anything else.
0: Yeah. Well, so I was actually just about to bring up that point because you really lay out how, you know, in the book, how Heaven's Gate has a Christology, a soteriology, Mm -hmm. an Mm eschatology— a cosmology, <laughs> you know, all of the, and, and all of the central aspects of yeah. Christianity. Uh, um, but also, you know, and, and this is something that Glenn Washington brought up in his podcast, Heaven's Gate, that given the context, given the day, it seems out, outlandish and bizarre to us, but given all of the elements at work in culture, um, you know, in the '70s, uh, when when T and Doe or Marshall Applewhite and and Bonnie Nettles started uh, what would eventually become known as Heaven's Gate, there was a lot of talk about extraterrestrials. It seemed very plausible. There was the the um, Oh, the the human, uh, what uh, human expansion movement? What what was it called? The New Age. Uh, the, you oh, so sure, the, the New Age movement. The New yeah. Age movement. Um, and and of course they were also steeped in kind of American Protestantism. And so combined yeah. with all those elements, what I get, what I got reading your book was, no matter how outlandish it may seem from a distance, when you get uncomfortably close to it what we realize is that it was actually very easy to believe these things for some people, given yeah. the cultural time and context. And, and so I'm wondering if you could talk some about the misconceptions about, he- about Heaven's Gate and cults in general, that these are people who are, delu- or, um, are brainwashed and not yeah. individual actors who, who believe that they are acting rationally.
1: Yeah, so I I think that's the one great sort of misconception I think most people have about cults is that the sort of person who join a cult is either crazy or brainwashed or in some way is, is an other. When in reality the people who join these sort of movements do so for idiosyncratic reasons which are not radically different from the reasons anyone joins any other social or religious organization. And it varies. It varies between reasons that we might hold up as very laudable, someone who's on a deep spiritual religious quest, trying to find meaning in life. We it, Some of the reasons are are, are tragic but common you know a person who's dealing with the fallout from a divorce or a breakup hmm. the death of a parent or a child and a sort of at a point in their life where they're they're looking for something to give them meaning um, others are, uh, are are just totally idiosyncratic the person happened to be in the right place at the at the right time but we see the same thing with people who join conventional you know normal quote-unquote scare quote normal religion or any other social movement uh, it, it's not that a person who joins a new religion is radically different from the rest of us and the whole idea of brainwashing is ultimately circular hmm. because what brainwashing claims is that I know something that the member doesn't the member says no I'm saying this of my own free will I'm doing this of my own free will but I as an outside observer somehow have some sort of <laughs> some sort of ontological status Where I I can be aware that they're 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 not speaking truly. Mm. It's a circular claim. Because ultimately you have to say, well, I guess I'm right and they're wrong. Whereas a member might turn around and say, well, I guess I'm right and you're wrong. It's a moral claim, but but listen, we make the same claims about all sorts of groups. I've met plenty of people who said, only half in jest. I used to be the member of X group, but I was brainwashed. while and now I'm out. X group is an occult. X group was like the Catholic Church, or you know, you know, a Methodist (laughs) or something. Right. Right. You know, so brainwashing can mean sort of I was a member of a group and I didn't like it. Sure, if that's what it means, though, it doesn't have any sophistication as a term. It just means that, you know, it's sort of a, a negative view of membership. Or
0: it could mean I am ashamed of the beliefs yeah, I used to yeah. hold, you know.
1: Yeah, yeah. I, yeah, you're entirely right. Or it could also be I'm ashamed or, or I need to explain the choices of, of family members who I don't agree with. Right. Uh, you know, it's often used in that way or as or, or mm. a way to, to assign victimhood.
0: Uh, could you talk some about the concept of brainwashing and where that comes from? Because I think that this is really, really important. You know, kind of what we were just talking about a, a little bit ago about uh, wanting to distance cults, wanting to distance new religious movements as cults. And those people are brainwashed. Uh, I think the brainwashed thing is part of that. Uh, and you talk about that in the book that that saying someone is brainwashed means that we don't have to take seriously what they believe. Oh, they were just you know hacked. Their brains were just hacked, and we don't actually have to see how you know a, a, examine the way in which their beliefs uh, reflect our culture or yeah, something it's, it's like a, that. You know,
1: yeah, it's it, it, it's a way to not have to take seriously that which is is threatening and. I mean, just to sort of frame it, we do the same thing with lots of terminology. Brainwashing is just one example we use with cults. Uh, I see it all the time in political discourse, and, and you do too. You know, the way in which it's easy to dismiss people, and I do it as well. Hmm. Uh, if, if if I find someone else's position disconcerting and unpleasant, I'm, it's easier to say, "Well, they're just brainwashed," or "They're just take your your political insult of choice. They're a libtard if you don't like liberals, or they're a, a right winger. I mean, whatever you want. It's easy to dismiss that way, hmm. and that doesn't mean that we that we shouldn't. I mean, I don't I don't like you know fascist, so I don't think I, I should have to, mm-hmm. you know... Take it seriously, but it is easy for me to say, well, that person is just a Nazi. Then it is for me to say, well, why is it that they hold beliefs I think are reprehensible? All right, mm. but brainwashing. Um, I mean, that's all my, my way of framing. We do the same thing. Brainwashing came out of a very particular context in the Cold War, and it has a couple of points of origin, but the, the sort of the most commonly told one is the way in which it helped explain why some American POWs, uh, who when they returned home, seemed to espouse the views of their captors. And in particular, uh, this was used uh, during the, the Korean War and then the Vietnam War as a way to talk about oh, how is it that these POWs, when they get out of the the these camps, seem to now be supporting communism? Well, they must have been brainwashed by their captors into uh, into doing it. That way, we don't have to to even consider the possibility that perhaps they really did think that communism was a better system than American capitalist uh, systems. Uh, now, this isn't to say that perhaps they weren't. Tortured or they weren 't convinced uh, in, in in negative manners, but it 's an easy way for us to just sort of dismiss it. The fundamental idea with brainwashing as it was originally conceived was reliant on locking someone up and torturing them basically and There were some more scientific and some less scientific claims about it. Some of the more scientific claims about it said it was sort of a coercion model, and some of the sort of magical claims were sort of that somehow if you locked someone up and tortured them, you could sort of use almost mind control to get them to do whatever you wanted later the cia tried to tried to sort of investigate this and try to figure out was brainwashing actually happening could they actually do it themselves and there was never much success and you know a lot of this is sort of clandestine has never been sort of fully told the story of what was going on but i i believe the cia tried some experiments they tried to use drugs and all sorts of things and they could never really get brainwashing to work and it sort of disappeared for a while um, and then it popped up again in pop culture with the Manchurian Candidate, uh, which was, you know, a story about sort of a, a person who had been sort of a, was a sleeper agent and was sort of brainwashed. And then with the cults in the 1960s and 70s, with the rise of, of, of alternative new religious movements, it again became useful discourse because brainwashing became a way in which particularly parents of of young people, college age kids who had dropped out to join these these new religions, which were by and large run by Asian gurus that uh, that did not espouse uh, sort of standard Western capitalism uh, or Christianity, how can we explain what these these kids were doing? Well, it's easiest to say they're brainwashed, as opposed to saying, well, they sat down and they decided they didn't want to have you know a conventional middle class job and be Christian and have a white picket fence and two point two children and a dog and you know and be a salary man. They decided to drop out of college and go join the Moonies uh, or the Harder Christenists or the children of God. And so once again it became a, a useful way to a uh, useful piece of rhetoric. Uh what's really interesting there is the initial model of brainwashing, which I admit does have some some value to it, was relying on the model of locking someone up and torturing them. Mm. And if you lock someone up, if you have full control over their mind and body, uh, you can you can control everything they're doing, you have them physically confined. I, I guess it's sort of plausible that you could, over over months or years or decades, do something which might sort of look like brainwashing. When we're talking about you bump into someone on the street... And somehow magically the brainwashing occurs. That sounds more like like some sort of magic to me
0: than it does uh,
1: the the traditional original model of what brainwashing was. Uh, Mm. So, and that's the point where, for my reading, it, it becomes very very circular once people latch on to this idea of brainwashing, they discard the original meaning of the term, the original model, and they craft all sorts of other ones, and sometimes it's sort of brainwashing light where it's sort of this coercion. Um, other times it really does to seem like it's sort of magic, that somehow some people can just sort of brainwash you. And if you, if you read some of the anti-cult rhetoric from the 70s, there's all these warnings that you too could be brainwashed. You know, never, you know, mm. don't even walk into the, you know, the, the Mooney Center because you can walk in a free person. <laughs> Five minutes later, you're brainwashed. And, I've read (laughs)
0: I've read websites to that effect. You know, don't even, don't even go to these places because these techniques are so powerful. And and then I listen, okay, so I'm a yoga teacher and I teach three classes a week and I'm a meditation teacher. And, and I read a lot of what, I read a lot of the tactics of brainwashing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I'm like, okay, a good portion of this is just what I do as a yoga teacher. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like, and I'm not and I'm not brainwashing anyone. I'm just having people uh, well, meditate. Yeah. Oh my god, I'm going to have people coming after me now. Yeah. Saying that I just admitted to brainwashing you, you know
1: <laughs> but the last time I taught this, by the way, a student said to me, "Well, this is just what the college admissions office does."
0: <laughs> exactly. Well, <laughs> yeah, yeah, it, it's just human society. It, it's just what we mm-hmm. do. It, it, it what so many people call brainwashing. Things like, um, you know, making. Continuous eye contact—that's one that's listed. Mm -hmm. Keeping, uh, you know, having your feet having your feet flat on the ground and making continuous eye contact. You know, speaking in a soothing voice, (laughs) Uh, chanting together, uh, which which can, admittedly, you know, Jonathan Haidt, who's one of my favorite writers, he talks about how we are one, how we are ninety nine percent chimp, one percent B, meaning that we are (laughs) we are mostly individualistic, but then there is that one percent that's completely. A communal. And it it's a switch that gets hit. And it gets hit during, you know, times of group meditation or or when people mm-hmm. are on the battlefield mm-hmm. or when people mm-hmm. are in... Or, you know, yeah. I, w- I was in music when, when you're in a choir together. Stuff like that. And it's this incredible sense of transcendence. Yeah. And yeah. that's a good uh, thing. Durkheim, that's,
1: this is, uh, this yes. is uh, the, the, the effervescence, as Durkheim called it. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly.
0: So, yeah, no, I just think it's funny where I'm like, I am by every measure... <laughs> <laughs> or not yeah. every measure, but I am by some measures doing the exact same brainwashing techniques in my yoga classes. <laughs> yeah.
1: it, I, I think every social group does the same thing. And yes. so the very best longitudinal study of what was considered one of the most dangerous new religious movements of the 70s, the Moonies, the Unification yes. Church. So Eileen Barker, who's a, um, she's retired now, she's a uh, English sociologist, British sociologist. She did a longitudinal study where she tracked uh, people as they walked in the front door, never having met a Moonie before, into the Supposedly dangerous places where they would be brainwashed in five minutes, and she tracked—I uh, forget what the, the number was—hundreds or thousands of people uh, in, in London, basically. Um, and she tracked how long they stayed, and she found that over a five to ten-year period, there was a, a upwards of a ninety-five percent failure rate for brainwashing, or what yes. people would call brainwashing.
0: <laughs> it's not a so very if, if effective.
1: You're, <laughs> if <laughs> your <laughs> brainwashing <laughs> fails on all but at most five percent, then they, yeah, that's not effective. Um, you know, I didn't do anything longitudinal with Heaven's because they were, by the time I started studying them in the '90s, they were already they were already gone. Mm. Uh, but from what I could find, archivally from ex-members, uh, they had five, six, seven hundred members at one point, and yes. at the end, there were there were about forty. Um, mm. And if that's what brainwashing is, boy, that that's not effective at all. You know, uh, that's you know, find a find an advertising agency which is going which gonna, is going to claim that sort of <laughs> that sort of success, and they're they're not going to find much business. Uh, mm. it, it, but it, it's the perception, right? Uh, here's another study. I hate to quote studies.
0: No, um, I love studies. There
1: was a, a great study, and I'm blanking on the author for this one. It was, um, it was a, a Canadian team. I want to say they were they were at McGill. Um, at, they gave to, uh, to students, a lot of these you know, these, these experiments are with you know, Psych 101 students, right? So they gave to some students descriptions of a person who joined a group. And the sa- it was the same description. Uh, the person had felt as if they were at sort of a point in their life where they weren't sure what they were going to do, uh, and they were looking for, for meaning in their life and value in their life. And they joined a group. And when they joined this group, they had to disconnect from their families. And they had to wake up at certain hours. And they had to, everyone had to do the same thing. And it was all sort of described. And then at the end, it said there were three different case studies or three different uh, groups. Um, So it's all the same description. And then, but at the very, very end, the last sentence varies. So one sentence is they had joined the Marines. And the other sentence is uh, they had joined the Catholic Church, a monastic order. And the third (laughs) is they had joined a cult. Yes. And then the students were asked, is this person brainwashed? And was this person, you know, were they coerced? Were they sad with... In, in their life when they were forced to do it. It was the exact same description. But when they were told just in one sentence at the very end they had joined the Marines, um, then people said, no, they weren't brainwashed. You know, they were patriotic. They were, you know, they, um, when they were told they joined a monastic order in the Catholic Church, there was a l- few more people who said, yeah, they were, you know, they, they were there was something needy about these people. They were unhappy in their lives. But by and large, they were, they were considered a, it was positive. When the students were told they were joining a cult, again, the exact same description, all of a sudden, they're reporting, oh, this person's clearly been brainwashed. You know, they clearly were mm-hmm. taken advantage of because they were at a weak point in their life. Uh, you know, it, that, if, that's, if that's what brainwashing means, then I don't think it means anything.
0: Yeah, absolutely. That's fascinating. And what... Okay, so you talk quite a bit in the book about how Heaven's Gate reflects American culture at large. Mm-hmm. And you know, everything that we've been discussing so far, calling it a cult, distancing ourselves from it by saying the members were brainwashed, all that stuff, all of that seems to be protecting us from things that it tells us about our society. Mm. Uh, what are those things?
1: Boy, okay. Well, so they're they're a religious group fundamentally, so I think a lot of them are religious things. So the idea that, uh, that somehow we live this life for and next life for an afterlife. We, we talked about that before, but that's a fundamental belief in Heaven's Gate. And that's something which tracks into broader mainstream, Judeo-Christian, if you want to use that term, but I would say sort of uh um, inner religious culture. Uh, the idea that that somehow what you do in this life isn't important just for, for now, but rather because you get some sort of reward or punishment. And that's really how they lived their lives. And that's why they ended their lives. Uh, and I think if we lose sight of that, we lose sight of something important in the way that maybe Many American Christians, uh, and to a lesser extent mm. Jews, Muslims, Hindus, Buddhists, might live their lives. Mm. Um, so that's one thing. But the other is the search for meaning that uh, we've become, particularly in in the latter 20th century, early 21st century, an in individualist society driven by by meaning making and by people's sort of projects of identity and projects of of crafting identities and and searching for meaning, not necessarily in the conventional religious groups they were born into, but by looking around. Uh, you mentioned the New Age movement earlier, so the new Wage movement is part of this, this massive sort of uh, social movement, which diffuse social movements, which started really in the 60s, 70s, 80s, uh, took form with that term in the early 80s, uh, of people who are engaged in all sorts of different religious or spiritual pursuits, everything from sort of crystal work to, to Reiki, alternative healing, yoga, meditation, ways in which people were were sort of spiritual entrepreneurs trying to figure out what can they do to better their themselves, to create their own sort of spiritual religious identity. And, and we see that in Heaven's Gate too, this was an eclectic group that drew from different traditions. That that said to people, "What you were born with is not necessarily the way to go, and and you've been looking." They explicitly said this. I mean, this was part of the sort of their. Uh, their, their proselytizing angle is you've been looking for spiritual fulfillment and you haven't found it. And it's not because everything else is bad. It's just because, uh, we offer them a one way sort of to, to surpass everything you've tried before. So they appealed to people who had tried all sorts of different spiritual techniques, people who had joined other religious orders or had, had engaged in sort of these, these, uh, spiritual practices on their own. Uh, but they tried to do it in sort of a social and a co- cohesive communal society. Um, and I think that was part of what made them unique is that for, many Americans, uh, we go on sort of our spiritual tracks on our own. Whereas for members of Heaven's Gate, it was very much in the communal setting.
0: That's fascinating. So basically what I'm hearing is that it is it is uniquely American and only <laughs> in that kind of, it, it's America that created this religion. It is our culture that created Heaven's Gate. And and Heaven's Gate kind of reflects all these different elements of us as a culture. and um,
1: yeah, yeah, I think it does. I think you're entirely right to say that. I mean, it has. A, I, I read it as coming entirely out of sort of the, the Christian theological relig- uh, world, combined with sort of this mid to late 20th century religious spiritual questing, and then throw in sort of this this uh, ET ufology side, which was very much a creation of popular culture in the the late 20th century. Everything from Roswell going forward, sort of this idea that uh, uh, of UFOs uh, watching us. I mean, mm. this is this is very much the heart of American religious. In popular culture, and that's what Heaven's Gate was working with.
0: Could you talk some about the ways in which Heaven's Gate is specifically Christian? How how what how can you track that specifically oh. out of Christianity? Like what specific elements?
1: Sure, sure. So uh, their basic beliefs were that. Uh, they uh, they had to transcend our Earth and go to what they called the evolutionary level above human or what Christians would call heaven. Uh, and they believed that 2,000 years ago, Christ came from this evolutionary level above human, which they equated with outer space or with heaven, and came to teach how people should do that. And then went back to this this. This next level, as they called it. Uh, But that ultimately, Christ and and God the Father and the angels and all the host of heaven were space aliens. And that what the, the, how, what Christians got wrong is they read the Bible in some sort of etheric spiritual sense when in fact they should have read it in a very physical sense that when the Bible talks about clouds of lights and sort of Ezekiel's chariot and all that stuff these things are physical things and that God and and Christ are physical beings in heaven and not just in, in the incarnational sense on earth
0: mm. and I think the the important thing here is that these were ideas that were already kind of in the ether. they didn't invent this. oh yeah, yeah this is oh, no. stuff yeah, like like, really not. like Chariots of the Gods um, yeah, yeah. by Van Donneken. Van Donneken. Thank yeah. you. Doniken, by yeah. Van Donneken, who kind of put forth the idea of ancient astronauts. Like, this was all mm-hmm. stuff that was already oh, in yeah. the ether in our culture. Anyway, sorry, go on.
1: You yeah, know, they just drew it together. And then, so what makes it very 1970s, though, is they took this sort of ancient astronaut stuff and this idea that Christ had been an alien and that uh, Christianity and the Bible and many other religions, they said as well, were all records of extraterrestrial contact. They combined mm. it with the end of the world. Millennialism, which was very powerful in the 1970s, this was the era of the late Great Planet Earth. uh, Hal Lindsey's book about the end of the world. Uh, This was the beginning of sort of the uh, that culture of of evangelicalism, which eventually gave birth in the 90s to the Left Behind series and this idea that sort of which was a fictionalized accounting of the end of the world. It's all based on a particular model of millennial thinking called premillennial dispensationalism. I won't go into the details here, but it is a uh, a standard American Protestant millennial. Outlook, And it focuses on the idea of the rapture, which is where the faithful will be brought up into heaven. And basically what Heaven's Gate is all about is about the rapture. But it's not a, a spiritual rapture. It's a physical rapture. Hmm. And Jesus is on a UFO. So that, you know that's Heaven's Gate in a nutshell. I'm so, simplifying, but you get it.
0: Yeah, awesome. Okay, so basically the hermeneutic for reading scripture mm-hmm. was kind of a materialistic UFO approach. But they still yeah, I love took... to use
1: the word hermeneutic. Yes, yes, yes. that's the hermeneutic. Well that's,
0: well that's what you that's how you described it in your book. Yeah. I, yeah and yeah. actually I just I actually just finished your book this afternoon, like an hour before this interview. So it's very oh, okay. fresh in my mind. So I don't hey, know- I'm glad someone read it. <laughs> hey, I make a rule to read every single book of an author that I interview because to not do that is just, you know, lazy and bad practice, in my opinion. But yeah, no, so I don't know how much of this I'm just regurgitating from your book because
1: it's well, already in my more <laughs> recently than i am so so please remind me oh, okay. of what i said because yeah. I, I haven't reread it recently
0: <laughs> so so i have an idea and i'm trying to articulate I'm, I'm trying to decide how I, how i want to at- articulate it or or get to it so i'll just go for it it so talking about the suicides themselves um was it in 1997 mm-hmm, yeah. and let me just see if i can recap some of the basic history here is uh, the show Art Bell, uh, Art Bell's show uh, uh, mm-hmm. Coast to Coast, coast which, to coast. which mm-hmm. was this, for people who have not heard Art Bell as Baddie as he is, he is a fucking legend, and you need to go listen to him <laughs> yes. just for that, just to un, just to get, just to kind of plug into that cultural relevance because he was a cultural touchstone mm-hmm. and um, you know spread mm-hmm. a lot of what I think are very bad ideas. But it's important to know who he is. So he had several conversations. Bigfoot, s- <laughs> yes, Bigfoot.
1: Yeah, he was into Bigfoot. Uh, <laughs> yeah, your, your listeners <laughs> who haven't heard. I mean, this was this was late night coast to coast AM radio. So yes. if you're a trucker driving from you know like you know from Memphis to to you know to LA at 3 a.m. This is what you're listening to and there's stories about UFOs and Bigfoot and ESP and, uh, you know, the Loch Ness Monster. It's it's all of the sort of everything from cryptozoology to sort of alternative religion. Yes. Uh, and a lot of conspiracy stuff and a lot of it is very conspiratorial. Yeah, That's what sort of, it, it all hangs together that way.
0: And and he just had like the best, like raspy smoker's voice, like that yeah, yeah, that yeah. late night radio voice. But no, definitely go check out Art Bell. But he host, he hosted several conversations about the Haley Bob Comet. Uh- people saying that they believed that there was kind of a, a following object behind it uh, that a lot of people uh, thought was a UFO and Heaven's Gate was the, the Heaven's Gate religion at this point just led by Doe. Uh, Bonnie Nettles had died and and kind of the group was, was more and more in this siege mentality because they were absorbing more conspiracy theories about the world around them. They believed that the end of the world was imminent and they uh, believed that this UFO in the tale of Haley Bopp was the UFO that was here to pick them up, but they had to commit suicide. They had to leave their terrestrial bodies in order to ascend in in that rapture-like moment Mm -hmm. to go up into the literal heavens. So... Did I get that right? Is that fairly yeah, I mean, right? That, that's
1: basically it. I mean, so the fundamental shift there is when they started in the '70s, the UFO was supposed to hover mid-atmosphere with Christ on board, and mm-hmm. they were all going to be lifted up in bodily form, mm-hmm. uh, and then they would sail off into heaven. And then when Bonnie Lou Nettles, the co-founder, died, so there were two founders: Marshall Herf, Applewhite, and Bonnie Lou Nettles. Uh, when Nettles died in 1985, 1985, uh, and her body wasn't taken anywhere, and she did. Didn't go up onto a UFO. They uh, they is is now apple white, and and the mm. members uh, decided they had been wrong to assume they would go in bodily form, and their bodies would uh, would transform. They took what is basically sort of a Gnostic turn and said, mm-hmm. well, the human body is apparently too frail to undergo the transformation to become a next level heavenly creature, so we're not going to bring the human body, which is fallen and corrupt. We're going to be given these new bodies in outer space, these sort of eternal um, uh, bodies, which are genderless and have no biological needs and will never get old or die or sick. We're going to be given these new bodies, and it becomes much more of a soul transfer. Um And that's post-85. And at that point, they're just looking for a way to get off the planet. And that really opens the door to suicide. They don't discuss suicide as far as anyone uh, knows until 1994. I've spoken with various uh, ex-members, and the first time anyone recalls any discussion about suicide was 1994. So it took uh, almost a decade of them sort of um, after Nettles died before death became sort of even a possibility. Um, And then... Uh, if you do the math from 1994 to 1997, only a couple of years before uh, they started looking at this as, as something they um, that they would do as a way to, to leave our planet and go into outer space. Uh, but you're right to say it's basically it's it's the rapture, and, but it was a self caused rapture.
0: So I think what is so fascinating here is that they ended their lives not out of despair, not out uh, or maybe there was some despair about the world about the state of the Mm, world and all that mm -hmm. but yeah Mm -hmm. they they ended their lives because they believed it they ended their Mm -hmm. lives because within the self-contained system of belief in which they lived it was reasonable and rational and made sense it was obvious to them in a way and yes, and so it wasn't this act of of despair and desperation. It was maybe in the same way that like the Jonestown massacre was. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, this was a genuine belief that they were graduating, that they were going yeah. to live forever, and that this was just the rite of passage. And and this gets to something that I keep coming back to again and again. That we should take people at their word when they tell us what they believe and <laughs> that that we should take and that we should take seriously people's beliefs because yeah. be, because beliefs have uh, direct consequences on how we lives our on how we live our lives
1: yeah uh so i i i think you're entirely right to characterize what what happened in in that way basically it was from their perspective it was euthanasia um, yes. the human body was uh, in in the ultimate long run dying from their perspective, and mm. there was no reason to leave now or to wait 10, 15, 20 years. They were all going to leave their bodies eventually. Why not do it collectively when the chance was there for them all to go as one class? They called themselves the class. So that was the... that was the, They never called themselves Heaven's Gate. That was the class was what they called themselves. Uh, and they wanted to graduate, to use that term. They would graduate as a class to the next level. Uh, and the time had come to do that. There was no reason to stick around. Uh, but I think you're entirely right to say we should listen to them talk about it. Uh, it is very easy to find on youtube or vimeo or just poking around online the exit videos which were produced by most of the members where they looked to you on camera and they really were thinking about you and me and the people who are left behind who are not part of the group and they explained why they were doing it and they all it wasn't all it was there were uh of the 39 i think there were maybe about 30 or so so some people didn't do it um Hmm. but um They explained why they were doing it. And people often said, you're going to think I'm crazy. You're going to think I'm brainwashing. I'm brainwashed. Let me tell you why I'm doing this. Let me tell you why this makes me happy. Let me tell you why I'm making this choice. Let me tell you about what tea and dough are like. If you want to watch all those and dismiss it, that's your business. That's your choice. Uh, But you can't claim that they didn't try to explain to you why this was to them, from their perspective, logical and rational. Now, I don't condone what they did. I'm not saying we should all do this. I'm just saying we have to take seriously that it was their belief, that they believed they were doing the right thing. Uh, and they're, e- they're easy to find. Uh, if you prefer to read, you can uh, go to their, their website, which is still up. It's run by ex members. And there's exit statements. So there's sort of written statements, a couple of written ones. So if you prefer to read, you can read the, the written statements. Uh, but if you want to watch or listen to, I think those have a lot of impact. Uh, the exit videos, they're called.
0: So, I, yeah. And, you know, none of this is to say that what they did was right or ethical (laughs) you know that yeah yeah that isn't clear so yeah that isn't what we're saying at all i know yeah when we
1: when we did the podcast i hope you if you listen to the podcast you hear we have sort of the we give the number to the suicide prevention hotline exactly and And, you know this is I, i i don't condone or support suicide but they've already done it the least we can do is try to understand why
0: Exactly. Exactly. So do you, this is a, this is a random question. It's one I asked Joseph as well. And it's just something that I'm really fascinated by of anyone who studies religions. Do you have any religious belief or practice? (laughs)
1: Huh, that's interesting. So, when my students ask me this, I always tell them they have to wait till after they graduate. Um, okay, well, I'm already graduated. Class, so <laughs> but That's fine. Yeah, but let, me, let me tell you why, though. I'll well, answer okay. your question. I'll tell you why first. <laughs> the why is I try to approach everything I'm studying the way an insider would. So, if I'm studying Heaven's Gate, I try to approach it the way a Heaven's Gator would. Mm. If I am studying evangelical Christianity, I try to approach it the way an evangelical would. If I'm studying uh, Buddhism, I try to approach it the way a, well, a particular Buddhist would, Rodriana, whatever it is. Um, my own personal religion. I'm raised Reform Jewish, which is a religious minority in the U.S., uh, but it's also a religion which which emphasized very much the idea of community and the idea that that we do make individual choices, but we're part of a group. Uh, but also, I was taught very early on by my my, my rabbi growing up was, uh, I think, in many ways an agnostic, if not an atheist, that ultimately he, he never pushed, they never pushed, believe XYZ or you're going to go to hell or you're going to be kicked out or something like that. I was very... Very much brought up being taught that I had to think for myself and think critically, and that yes, I, I made my choices and I was part of a group, but that that didn't excuse me from thinking critically about them. And I think I really value that. Uh, I value that I was brought up and I am a religious minority in the U.S. That gives me, I think, a similar outsider consciousness. But I also have always valued that I have never found, from a personal perspective, that that uh, that it is all threatening to think about critically whether my own beliefs and practices are, are, are valid or not. Ultimately, I believe and do what I do regardless of, their, of what, what I or anyone else think of. Um, and I think for me personally as a scholar, that has influenced me because I think it brings a certain degree of, uh, degree of empathy. And I would like to think it makes me a better scholar to have that empathy. I don't know what, uh, what uh, Joe Laycock t- uh, said to you, but I'm guessing he had a similar point about empathy. Um, Although I I know his religious upbringing is different, but um, I think that for a lot of us, having that sort of empathy is important. Again, we don't have to agree with these people. We just need to recognize that they're fellow human beings. Absolutely. Or at least, from my perspective, I, the irony with Heaven's Gate is they didn't think they were human beings. But I've said this to ex member I, I've said to ex-members. I said I, I was sitting on a panel once with uh, with Sawyer, who's an ex-member, and I said, "Listen, I recognize what I'm going to say is at some levels offensive to you, but I, I, what I'm trying to do is humanize these people. I realize yes. they don't want to be human, but I want to. I want to humanize them to understand them. I realize they don't want to be human. So, sorry, Larry. He said he got it. He said he got it. Uh, That's that's hilarious. But yeah.
0: Do you do you think that religion will will ever go away? Do you, th- you know? Oh, I, no, no, no. So I've, I've been, you know, <laughs> I I have one foot. I consider myself a deeply religious person. I also consider mm-hmm. myself a deeply skeptical person. You know, mm-hmm. I'm uh, I was raised Christian. I still consider myself Christian. But in many ways, I think I'm agnostic and non-theistic. But I value the, the systems and, mm-hmm. and the culture, and I value uh, Christianity as, at the very least, mm-hmm. an, an inner guiding mm-hmm. myth, which helps to contextualize my life. And uh, so I'm a, I'm a deeply religious person, but I'm also a deeply skeptical person. And, and so I have kind of one foot in the religious world, and then one foot in the kind of very skeptical atheist world. And I often hear talk about the day in which religion will soon die away. What do you think is wrong with that?
1: Let me tell you several things that are wrong with that. So okay. let me start with a story. I, I was just at a gathering this last weekend, and I um, one of the the people who was at the the uh, this gathering. It was a salon, actually, sort of a you know where the uh, people get together and talk about sort of religion and politics and culture. And one of the uh, the people who was there uh, was a uh, she was a minister of a. Um, GLBTQ uh, church of Christians. And so she was talking about sort of grappling with sort of, you know, the way in which not all GLBTQ people feel comfortable in the Christian church. And she was noting, though, that this was her story and that her story was the Christian story. And even though she grappled with it, members of her community grappled with it, that this was her story. And I mean, she had a much broader point than that. Than that. But but just to, to to grab a bit of that, the stories we tell are important, and we as people tell stories we've been telling stories since we've probably as long as we've had fires and campfires we've probably been telling stories yes. right and we tell stories recognizing that whether they're true or not they have value and they have meaning and some of the stories are certifiably true we know they're true because we saw them uh, others we think are true because people we we trust saw them and I and you know religions would fall in that category others are clearly not true we tell them anyways uh, my kids are obsessed with Harry Harry Potter because it's a great story, because it gets to some fundamental truths in in, in life. You know, I I'm gonna I can, spoil it here for anyone who hasn't read Harry Potter, but <laughs> you know, it's um it's about sacrifice, it's about love, it's about family, it's about commitment, it's about bravery. And my my third grader is it's savvy enough to realize it's fiction, but that doesn't make it mean it, it's less valuable and powerful of a story to her. Mm. So will religion ever fade away? No, I don't think so. It, even people who are atheists or agnostics find value in religion because it's powerful. I, the other reason it's not going to fade away is we've had, we've had a lot of history and sociology to point out that it's not going anywhere. <laughs> Just look around the world. Um, mm. but, but I think fundamentally uh, w- religions are powerful things. You know, I, I I'm a bit of a of a Campbellian, I suppose, in Joseph Campbell here, in, in making this claim. But I think that they speak to us, and every religion is different and speaks to us in a different way. I guess there I might break from Campbell, but uh, but fundamentally, uh, religions speak to us, and that's why I think you find a lot of people yeah, who who are in the pews, maybe metaphoric pews if they don't have pews, but <laughs> they're they're in the la- in, in the community, and and they may say, well, maybe I don't believe it all, but but this is who I am. I keep coming back here. Yeah, And I think that that's the truth.
0: Do you think that—and I know that this is a really big question to end on uh, at the end of the show—but I consider myself a non-theist, but open and hopeful about the spiritual world. And do you think that as people start trying to reconcile ancient faith with modern science, that— we will start to see more non-theistic or agnostic religion. Religion that mm. that first and foremost values the story and the symbol and the ritual and the community. All of those things. You know, I'm actually just reading a book right now by uh, Ruben van Luich. I can't say his last name. He's uh, Dutch or something, but uh, it's called Children of Lucifer and it's a and it's a history of religious. Oh satanism. I
1: know that book. I can't it, pronounce it either. Yeah. Oh, I can't it's, myself. I can not oh, even try to great. pronounce that name.
0: It's great. That's yeah, a good
1: book. I, I haven't started it yet. I, I, read, I read the cover and said I got to buy this one. So it's on my shelf to read. Yeah,
0: it's awesome. I'm yeah. in the middle of it right now. But what he says—it it actually
1: won a bunch of awards too.
0: Oh, great. Uh, i yeah. Yeah. well. I'm I'm a member of the Satanic Temple as well. So I. Okay. Mm-hmm. And so, but one of the reasons I'm attracted to TST is just that is that they are a non-theistic religion. Yeah. Um. And and I wonder if well what what Ruben Van Luich says <laughs> is that religion is ultimately a set of symbols and stories and practices that relate us to what we believe to be ultimate reality mm-hmm. um, and I really like that I and I wonder if you think that we're going to start seeing more non-theistic or agnostic religion
1: yeah I, th- I think yes but I think I, I think two things are gonna happen one is we're gonna see that we're gonna see more theistic I'm sorry uh, 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 non-theistic or agnostic or sort of um, science-friendly religions in that way. I mean, um, I teach a religion and science course, actually. uh, And I find uh, one of the things I assign is is Carl Sagan's work. And Sagan was a a deeply religious person, although not religious at all. He was deeply religious about science. Uh, And deeply mystical. yeah, absolutely. I and mean, his last his last book uh, from his Gifford lectures uh, mm. was the varieties of scientific experience, and it's basically uh, it riffs on William James, and it's it's yes. the idea that that science offers religious value. Yes. I have a lot of students in my class who take that class uh, who are science majors and who come away and say, "Yeah, that's me." You know, I I I get my religion through through that. I have many other students in my class who who are science majors. You know, they 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 believe in the ancient origins of earth you know and and you know they're not no creationists or anything. They they they're they're scientific people. They're studying science, and they they simply hold religion sort of on a second uh, in, in a second sphere of their lives. Uh, this is more like uh, Stephen Jay Gould's uh, non-overlapping magisteria idea. Yeah, you can have sort like of you have your scientific ideas. Yeah, Collins. That's, yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Now You can't do that if you're a literalist. If you're anything other than a literalist, that's very easy to do. Yeah. So, um, so and, and that is very theistic. There's there, there's nothing non-theistic about that. But it is simply saying. That that one is going to keep one's theism and one's religion separate from one's scientific uh, perspectives, and as long as one is okay with that line, and I think philosophically one has to say, you know, that that, um, that ultimately, in some ways, it is science which is which is running the show. There, you know, if science says the Earth is a million years old, it doesn't matter what the Bible says. Right. Um, you go with what science says. Right. So as long as you're okay with that, and on some level, Francis Collins is and has to be, because he's okay with empiricism, because he's okay with sort of the entire history of how these ideas came up, then, then that works. And I have a lot of students who think that way as well. I can tell you in, in the number of times I've taught this class, and I teach religion and science every year to a class of about 25 people, the number of 18 to 22-year-olds who want to hold on to some sort of young earth creationist sort of fundamentalist model approaches zero. I think maybe one. Now, part of that is I'm I'm at a liberal arts college. So, I mean, the the people who come to take my classes, they know they're being asked to think critically. They were attracted to a college where they're being told they're going to think critically. You know, if I were teaching at a Bible college, it might be a little different. But even then, I think that it is really tough to live in the 21st century and claim some sort of pre-modern sets of claims. Then again, then again, I say that and uh, look at like the Flat Earth Society, right? (laughs) Right.
0: Right, right, right.
1: <laughs> so, I mean, I study new religions. So, for for you know, for which are small, you know, which I mean, that that's the point, though, is that yeah, I think for the major, for for most people, we might move one direction, but there's always going to be small niche communities of people who say that's not for me. Mm-hmm. I want to believe in a five thousand year old Earth. I want to believe the Earth is flat. I want to believe God is a space alien. I want to believe that God is my next door neighbor and came to talk to me. I want to believe I'm God. I mean, there's, um, there's always going to be small niche groups and that's why the study of new religious movements, thankfully for me, is not going anywhere.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think that's a great note to end on. We have covered just a tiny fraction of this subject. And so, uh, where can people find you? What, uh, resources would you recommend?
1: Well, I'm easy to find online if if you really want to talk to me. Um, my, uh, personal website or my professional website is on my college's homepage, which is, uh, Lakeforest.edu. That's Lakeforest with an L, as in Lake Michigan, which we are right on. So lakeforest.edu. And I'm easy to find. If you just Google my name, uh, Benjamin Zeller or Ben Zeller, I'm easy enough to find. But for good resources, Joseph Laycock and I co edit uh, Nova Religio, which is the Journal of New and Alternative Religions. It is an academic journal, so it's behind a paywall. But if you're at a university or a college, you can access that. There's a, a great sort of um, uh, a list of sort of new and alternative religions. It's sort of a public open encyclopedia called the World Religions and Spirituality Project. Hmm. It's run out of, I believe it's Virginia Commonwealth University. But if you Google World Religions and Spirituality Project, um, you can find it. Its URL is some version of world religions, but it, it's missing some of the vowels. So, and that has a list of, of big religions, but also lots of little religions like, um, well, like Heaven's Gate and others, uh, where, where you can find entries curated and written by scholars to talk about what these groups are. So so it's a nice sort of um, relatively unbiased source. So that's a great one. Um, so I'd recommend that.
0: Awesome. And I also highly recommend your book. Just finished it today, Heaven's Gate, America's UFO Religion. Um, thank you. Yeah, it is fantastic. And thank you again so much for, for joining me. This has been fabulous and fascinating.
1: Thank you for having me. It's been a real pleasure. I have to go punch down my bread, though. It's rising. My dough is rising. I okay. have to punch it down. So the, okay. the, the, the interview has to end because the, <laughs> the, the in, dough doesn't. It break. has
0: to end now. <laughs> okay. Well, I'll will uh, record my usual post-show spiel later. Uh, okay. All right. Thanks so thanks so I'm gonna much for listening. I have to go
1: punch down my dough. Okay. okay. going to have overinflated bread. No one wants that. <laughs> okay. Bye, all right. Bye. Yep. Bye. It was a pleasure.
0: All right. Well, that was my interview with Benjamin Zeller, author of Heaven's Gate, America's UFO Religion. As usual, this show is supported by my patrons at patreon.com forward slash Stephen Bradford Long. And if you want to join their number for just $1 or $5, you will get access to a patrons-only podcast called The House of Heretics, in which my assistant Justin and I have long meandering conversations about faith and doubt and uh, sexuality and religion and all sorts of stuff. The music is by The Jelly Rocks and 11T7. You can find their music on iTunes and Spotify. And as usual, thanks for listening.